This week's sponsor has a product I can literally use every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to support my meat-free diet with important vitamins and minerals. Athletic Greens is made entirely from plants and has 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to make sure I'm getting everything I need. This special blend of ingredients supports my lifestyle and fits into vegetarian, gluten-free, paleo, keto, and other routines. It's lifestyle-friendly and keeps me in 2020. Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now, it's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million supplements and pills. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. The Utmost Island Chapter 14 Night was approaching when the ship reached the projecting cape, which is the foot of Greenland. Wind and waves had been rising for some time. The storm was obviously on the very verge of breaking, so they headed into an inlet that looked like a safe place in which to wait for morning. The seafarers felt that good luck was with them in showing them this haven, while there was still light enough to be seen for they would not have dared come near an unknown rocky coast in the dark, and would be forced to ride out the storm offshore all through the night. The inlet, which continued to be deep and navigable as they moved along it, cut directly into the land. Here and there, ice appeared, floating on the surface, but not enough of it to be dangerous. It all looked very much like the fjords which they knew so well, except that the cliffs which formed its walls were somber and forbidding, being made of a solid mass of some kind of stone that was black as iron, with patches of snow that made it seem blacker still. These cliffs were very tall, too, so that the sky seemed far away and as if seen through a slit, across which the storm clouds rushed. All on board felt subdued, and found themselves unaccountably lowering their voices. There was none of the excitement and jubilation over coming into port to which they had looked forward. They began to wonder whether all Greenland were as awesome and chilling as this part of it. Then, remembering Red Eric's account, they feared the rest might be worse. The inlet grew narrower and curved considerably as they rode inland, until the boiling ocean was cut off from view behind them by those black cliffs. Up ahead, sheets of ice on the surface grew more dense. It would probably be best to ride at anchor until the storm ended, and then to sail further around the coast in search of land that was greener, or at least less black and white. They would go around the shoulder of just one more great cliff to see what lay beyond. As they did... It happened. There was a sudden sound of screaming and yelping, 
as of a pack of wolves, and the scralings were upon them. They came from everywhere at once, out of crevices and from behind boulders, in their little skin boats, of which their furry hats and jackets made them seem apart. They paddled furiously towards the ship, covering distance with a speed that seemed incredible. All the while, they kept their appalling screaming and yelping. A whole tribe was there, so many men and boats that they could not be counted. Indeed, no one thought to count, because of the surprise and the noise. No one thought of anything at all for a moment, and that moment was all the Skralings needed, for it brought them close enough to the ship to throw their spears. Short weapons like javelins they were, with broad heads and handles of bone, and they threw them so straight and hard that there were dead men among the Icelanders before they knew an attack was being made. There was no time to reach for shields or spears, or to string bows. Luckily, sword and dagger always hung at a man's belt, or there would have been no weapons at all. But even with these, it was not possible to strike a clean blow at the Skralings, for they darted by too swiftly in their little witch boats, and dodged and wheeled about in them as a man does on his own feet. Time had to be lost, too, in herding the women and children to the center of the ship, not only to be out of danger, but because a woman sometimes thinks she is perfecting a man by flinging her arms around him, when what he wants is freedom to swing a sword. But the worst disadvantage of the Icelanders was that they'd never known this kind of warfare, whereas the Skralings seemed to know very well how Vikings fought and were prepared for it. A number of them suddenly rode to the very side of the ship, as if they were going to try climbing aboard. But this was a ruse, as was seen too late, for when one of the men leaned over the side to strike at them with a sword, the Skraling at whom the blow was aimed turned suddenly upside down, boat and all, so that he was under the water in his boat above it. The Icelander's sword cut through the air instead of a neck, and he lost his balance. Thereupon, other Skralings darted forward in their boats, seized him, and hauled him overboard, helped by their capsized companion, who righted himself as expertly as he'd turned over. They seized two of the crew in this way, and dragged them through the water towards shore, two Skralings in boats holding a man between them while each rowed with his free hand. When they got their captives to the side of the fjord, they shoved them under the ice which floated there, and that was the last that was seen of them. This much of the fight had taken place with lightning speed, so to say that the Sea King had regained his wits by now does not mean that he'd been at all slow about it. It is hard to think at all in the midst of sudden death. Before it was too late, he saw what he must do, and that is better than many would have done, especially as he weighed all the possibilities in that short time and chose correctly. He ruled out trying to fight these men, who would not come near enough for swordplay. Nor would it do any good to come ashore and try to settle matters there, for there was scarcely any level space to set foot, with the cliffs beginning immediately and rising straight up. Skralings were perched up on the sides wherever they could find a ledge, waiting to throw down spears and rocks if anyone should try to land, or even if the ship came near enough. 
He saw now they had a number of large dogs, too, almost the size of wolves, and looking very much like them, which were doing part of the yelping and were eager to get into the fight. If the Icelanders tried to come ashore, most of them would be pounced on and drowned at the water's edge. But neither could they stay where they were, because night was coming very fast, and with darkness it was they who would be boarded. They must not continue further into the fjord, because it grew ever narrower as they advanced, and with the surface more ice-covered. If they went on, they would be frozen into the fjord and speared from the cliffs. A single, desperate choice was theirs. They must go back into the open sea. A frightful storm was waiting for them there, and a glance upward at the strip of sky showed the blackening clouds but on the ocean, there was a chance, however slight, to escape death. He gave the order to back out. Returning would bring them too near the shore in that narrow place. Back they went, towards the sea, less seven of their number. While their victorious foes shouted mockery at them in a language they did not understand and had no heart to answer. The crew and the bonders put their whole strength and will into the oars, thinking and straining for only one thing, how to stay alive. But the master of the ship could not grant himself much single-minded luxury. A question had arisen in his mind for which he must find an answer and have it ready before the others got around to asking it. Where were they to go? It could not be to Greenland. Not any longer. Not any part of it. The Skraelings would harry them wherever they might land. They would be watching from every cliff. He could see, by the way they fought and the way they knew how Vikings fought, that something had happened in the past to cause their hate and frenzy. Thorgis Drangar's kinfolk had left some tale untold, hoping for one more shift in the vengeance game, and it had happened. The old debt to Thor could not be paid here. Then where? Greenland and this ship were the only places in the world where they could be, and Olaf not find out. Then they must stay forever on the ship, making it their only home, raiding for what they needed when they needed it. Sooner or later they would all be killed. Sooner or later the ship would rot. Sooner or later they must be put into port to be seized and held for Olaf. Were they to fall into his hands then, at last? Was Iceland lost for nothing? Their homes gone for nothing? His son stolen for nothing? Was there no escape from Olaf or his new god? Olaf the pursuer. Olaf the sure. Olaf the doom. The ocean was waiting for them ravenously when they backed into it, and Ajir laughed in their faces when they recognized his perfidy at last. Now that they and the gods who protected them were like in deadly peril, he had chosen to be more a giant than a god, and faced these diehards who were on Odin's side, sending a raging army of billows against them. Darkness would be complete in a very little while. Ajir knew they must try to get clear of the land whilst they could see it all, 
or risk being wrecked on unknown rocks. As they veered around so as to strike him with their dragon-headed prow, he did his best to capsize them, and nearly succeeded, because seven rowers were missing and others had been wounded. But he was dealing with great sailors, the greatest in the world, and turnabout they did despite him. Time after time he tried furiously to throw them back upon the land, where the ship would be destroyed by rocks and themselves by spears. But they fought him valiantly with their oars, and his brother the wind with their sail, and steadily pulled away from the danger. The night now became wholly black. They could see no stars by which to guide themselves, nor even the land itself to steer away from. It had ceased being a black bulk against an almost black sky and had become part of the total blackness that enclosed everything. All they could do was listen for the breakers and steer so that the sound would remain behind them and grow ever fainter. Thor tried to help them, but he could do very little, being busy preparing the defense of Asgard. Still, he did manage to toss an occasional lightning bolt at a jeer, which lighted up the patches of snow and showed where the cliffs were lurking. Failing to tear their keel out on the rocks, Ajir tried to flood them. He threw great quantities of water into the ship, but the women and children seized bailing scoops and threw it back in his face, so that the men did not have to let go of the oars. Throughout the night, that double battle went on, to get far away from the black cliffs and to keep Ajir in his place. Everybody did all they could, without stint, rowing, bailing, or singing to encourage the others. The Sea King sang while he steered and agonized over the problem of where his unhappy ship would ever make harbor. The song had a good lilt and rhythm for rowing. You could scarcely call it a cheery song. What song could be, with that darkness about and that surge beneath? And this was about a man's grave. But it cheered nonetheless, because it reminded them that it was land as well as water. I shall not die at sea. There is a house ashore awaiting me. That house is very small, no broader than myself, from wall to wall. Not long, nor wide, nor high, but room enough wherein a man can lie. It has not any door, but once inside I shall come out no more. I shall escape the deep. There is a house ashore where I shall sleep. This did their spirits so much good that he sang again, a somewhat lighter song. Again, it could not be called truly frolicsome, but it instilled courage of a cynical kind, derived from a cynical opinion of women and whether their devotion could ever be counted upon. If I were drowned at sea... How many girls would mourn for me? How many girls would weep and wail and pine? Nine? How many girls would grieve about my fate? Eight? How many girls would wish me back from heaven? Seven? How many girls their bread with tears would mix? Six? How many girls would hope I was alive? Five? 
How many girls would sigh forevermore? Four? How many girls would cry, oh misery? Three? How many girls would still continue true? Two? How many girls would think their lives were done? One? No, my son, not one, none. Well then, since not one girl would mourn for me, I'll not be drowned at sea. Though this was a bit more light-minded than the first song, it did not quite give them the animation they needed. So he stopped trying to remember songs that were made to cheer, and instead made up a song that might stir them in another way. It was about fighting, and concerned their recent battle with the Skraylings, but he sang of it in such a way as to make it seem somehow like a victory. They hid in their shadowy fjords, the cowards. They kept out of reach of our swords. The cowards. Let them but come where we can reach them. Oh, what a lesson we will teach them. We will slay them. We will flay them. We will split them. We will spit them. Their hands will chop off. Their ears will lop off. Their arms will break off. Their heads will take off. And leave their skulls to feed the gulls. And leave their eyes to feed the flies. For their men will find graves, of their women will make slaves. Then their chief we will seize, force him down on his knees, and with daggers will hack eagle's wings on his back. This song produced wild enthusiasm, particularly the way it ended. There was no more satisfactory way of killing a foe than by cutting the design of a flying eagle deep into his back. His screams indeed resembled an eagle's, while the way he writhed made the bloody wings look as if they were flapping. The notion of doing this to a scraling chief roused them to the same elation they had felt when boasting what they would do to Olaf. Now they boasted again, each describing the part he'd taken to the fight, albeit the least bit exaggerated. Even Turker had struck some brave blows, and when he said so, no one denied it. They all began to feel proud of themselves and of each other. Their high spirits infuriated Ajir, who had been hoping to break their will. He watched them malevolently, then seizing a moment when they were the most jubilant and least alert, he threw one of his most enormous waves over the rail, flooding so much of the ship that they almost foundered then and there. That wave extinguished their glee as it would a fire. Panic seized them. With unanimity born of their sudden joint plight, all stopped whatever they were doing, even rowing, and bailed frantically, with scoops, helmets, or hands. After a few perilous minutes, they were safe again and panting as they resumed their regular tasks. But those few minutes had brought them so near death that they were sobered, and faced things as they were, not as they wished they were. They saw that they must wage a long, desperate fight, as easy to lose as win. No more thinking about anything else. They managed to get a short breathing space. They poured barrels of whale oil on the water about them, and Ajir, 
sickened by having his children's blood thus poured into his face, was unable to attack them until it washed away. The Sea King followed a custom of all masters whose ships were threatened. He removed the golden spirals which he wore around his arm, broke off bits and gave them to all who had no gold. Now, if indeed they were to travel downward into Ajir's Hall, it would be said there that people from Earth were rich and worthy of respect. Then, with every precaution taken, everyone grimly at work, every sinew strained to the utmost, he went back to wondering what port awaited them, or if there was any port for them at all. In all that cold, he sweated as he wondered. A king, whether is he a sea king or any other kind, must never be in doubt. Well, he had no doubt about this particular moment. They must go wherever that rocky coast was not. But afterward, when the storm ended, when they found themselves once more on the open sea, by daylight and still alive, what then? That was the moment for which the crew was striving, for which they were giving up their last crumb of strength. That was when they would fall exhausted on their benches and wait for him to say which of the four corners of the sky they should head for. Ajir's daughters slapped him across the face with their wet hands, their giant father spat at him, and his brother the wind turned icy and froze the spittle on his cheeks. The Sea King made no attempt to brush away these tokens of their scorn. He leaned his full weight to steerboard, so as to retain his mastery of the rudder, and turned his eyes in the darkness, towards part of the ship's hold where he knew the image of Thor was. He prayed silently to the god for whose sake he had embarked, not to let him be that most piteous of all creatures, a ship's master who did not know what course to take. He prayed hopelessly, because it was certain to happen. His companion must find it out. He would have to say to them, We are lost. We have no place to go. It is my fault. Then, Sea King. Sea King. They would take the name and the honor from him. He saw himself suddenly, as he was when he first called himself that, at the age of seven. That seven-year-old self of his looked as if it wanted to cry. Thanks, as always, so much for listening. Might I also recommend you give a listen to another podcast called Somebody Write This? Somebody Write This is a podcast all about creativity in unusual places and the fun of making a good story out of an unlikely idea. You're a creative lot. Tune in to engage with a randomly generated plot synopsis and listen to the hosts brainstorm together how it could be turned into a plausible story. Creation isn't always easy, but it's always rewarding. Check out Somebody Write This anywhere you listen to podcasts. Good night. Good night.